Welcome to today's podcast with Paul Levy. Paul Levy is somebody who I have been thinking about for some time now. Uh, many of you have heard me, my podcast, the solo cast that I last did on the Dark Night of the Soul, and Paul Levy's work as an author with Dispelling with Tico was instrumental in getting me through the hell, basically. It was fucking hell. There's no two ways about it. My interaction with Watiko, which is the Native American term for evil, darkness, the devil, whatever you want to call that energy, uh, was brought on through a, a trip with 5-MEO DMT around solstice of last year, winter solstice. And it was dark times. I mean, I literally lost my mind for 17 days, if you haven't listened to that podcast. And one of the grounding chords that set me straight was reading Paul Levy's book, Dispelling with Tico. It is absolutely fantastic. You don't have to have listened to the solo cast or have read Dispelling with Tico to get a lot from this episode. We dive into a lot on Watiko, what it is, how we interact with it. We dive into Paul's personal story in uh, going to a mental hospital and how he found his way out through spiritual awakening, uh, and or actually was he was going through a spiritual awakening, which landed him in the loony bin, which is uh, ironic and hilarious. But we dive into a lot of great stuff. Um, Paul also did another book, The Quantum Revelation, which many of you have heard me speak about, and it is incredible. It is so good. So please check out these books. We'll link to them in the show notes. Um, he's got another two, I think, that he's authoring right now. So we had to keep this interview pretty short, but he'll be back on the show for sure. I will continue to read anything this guy writes. And um, it's just a fantastic episode I know you guys are going to love. There's a number of ways you guys can support this podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. That way people can hear about it. And check out our sponsors. We are brought to you today by thecoldplunge.com. The Plunge's revolutionary cold plunge uses powerful cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you cold, clean water whenever you need it, making it far superior to an ice bath or a chest freezer. Now, y'all know that I've been big on the chest freezer. I got one from Home Depot. You did the extra, I did the extra caulking, that kind of stuff. The problem with it is there's no filter. So that means I had to pump it out, and then the pump only works, like an above-ground redneck pool pump only works to like the last inch of water. Then you got to soak that out or get it out with a protein shaker. It was a nightmare. Mold was in there all the time. It was really not a good deal. Um, even with food-grade hydrogen peroxide and all the other shit that I tried to add to it, it became highly inconvenient every time I had to change that out. Right now with the cold plunge, not only does this thing filter with ozone and other filtration techniques, it pumps, it actually moves the water. So it gets down to 39 degrees Fahrenheit. And because the water is moving, you never actually really feel settled in there. So I've, I'm down to like two to three minutes max in this thing. Um, I've got it in my garage. It is absolutely incredible. It looks beautiful. I mean, it's something where I'm like, I want people to see it. It looks fancy. It is fancy. It's incredible. And if you use code KKP at thecoldplunge.com, you're going to get $111 off. So go check it out. That is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash thecoldplunge.com. Code KKP for $111 off. We like that 111. We're also brought to you by Lucy. Lucy was founded by Caltech scientists who were former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. So they researched and developed this for over three years, creating a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that has three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. They also came out with a lozenge and cherry ice flavor. These products can be enjoyed anywhere, flight, work, on the go, even in the gym. I love this stuff in the gym. Many of you heard me talk about this when I run this ad because nootropics in the gym are very important. It's very important for fitness that you turn on the brain and acetylcholine turns on the brain. It's what gives us language, memory, cognition, and nicotine just happens to be a master key that fits into acetylcholine receptors within the brain. It is one of the best, if not the best nootropics on the planet. The only issue is how do you get clean nicotine? Well, we know cigarettes are bad, but this is a phenomenal way to get a nootropic that will switch your brain on like nothing else in a very clean and easy to consume way. Check it out, lucy.co, that's L-U-C-Y.co. And of course, got to do the disclaimer here. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. I got to I got to be like the Micro Machines guy. Uh, if anybody remembers that, if you're born in the '80s, you remember Micro Machines. Say that say that as fast as I possibly can. All right. We're also brought to you by Magnesium Breakthrough from my dudes at Bioptimizers. If you want to get healthier, one of the best things you can possibly do is to get at least seven hours of quality sleep every night. 
It's hard to get that much sleep. Your mind keeps you awake. You can't get comfortable. You wake up early and can't fall asleep again. There are a hundred reasons why you can't get seven hours of quality sleep every night. But listen, it's super important because your body heals itself in your sleep. And if you're not getting enough quality sleep, you're increasing your risk of disease, dis-ease. You even make it harder to lose weight and get shredded. Would you like to know an easy way to get more quality sleep every single night? Make sure you're getting enough magnesium. Believe it or not, around 75% of people don't have enough of it. I'd say that number is even higher, honestly, which helps explain why so many people have sleep problems. But please do not run to the store to buy the first magnesium supplement you find. Most magnesium supplements only use two of the cheapest synthetic forms. And since they're not full spectrum, they won't fix your magnesium deficiency or help you sleep better. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming, sleep-enhancing benefits. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed by how much better you sleep and how much more rested you feel when you wake up and also how much better you recover while you're working out. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.magbreakthrough.com dot com slash kingsboo and use kingsboo 10 during checkout to save 10 percent. of course we'll link to this long url in the show notes www.magbreakthrough.com slash kingsboo and use code kingsboo 10 at checkout for 10 percent off we are also brought to you today by silent mode silent mode is a peak performance company aiming to help 100 million people reduce their resting heart rate by five percent enabling happier healthier lives They believe the combination of music, science, and technology can create a new genre of mental fitness training, which can be practiced at home or work or when traveling. By providing access to guided mental fitness workouts delivered through a sensory deprivation device, their toolkit custom builds a custom mental fitness program based on biometric feedback to help you breathe, sleep, and nap your way to a better life. It's for connected humans who want to improve peak performance. Silent Mode provides tools and techniques that power your mind and body. This is absolutely fantastic. These guys have uh, a whole system set up. The Power Mask, which is a mental fitness training toolkit that immerses your mind and body. Personal space for you to optimize your mindset wherever you are. Private space for your thoughts to find balance. A personal sanctuary for your mind. And Breathonics, which is an incredible app that uses guided breathwork workouts produced with neuromusicologists. That's right, I said that correctly. Neuromusicologists, they basically have used music to tune you up or tune you down along with breath work that mirrors that. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman's big on this stuff and has studied it quite a bit, not affiliated with these guys, but the science is there. And what they're going to do is if you need to wake up early in the morning and you need to get it going, they're going to give you a breathwork protocol for that. That's going to have music to match it alongside while you're wearing your power mask. And if you're trying to calm down, like I often do, this is going to help me to calm down before I go to sleep at night or before I take a nap in the middle of the day. It is absolutely phenomenal. One of the favorite tools that I've ever used. And uh, you can get 15% off the power mask and six months free at Breathonyx with a subscription at silentmode.com slash KKP. That's S-I-L-E-N-T-M-O-D-E.com slash KKP. Use the promo code KKP21. That's silentmode.com slash KKP, promo code KKP21, and you'll get the hook up there. All right, and we're ready. My dude, Paul Levy. Paul Levy, welcome to the podcast, brother. Yeah, hey, it's great being here. Thank you. Yeah, I I, uh, I was absolutely thrilled. You know, uh, I'm I'm good friends with Paul Check, and and he's one of my mentors. And um, he actually he around Christmas time, I think, had every one of his students and and close friends get the quantum revelation. And this was right after I had just finished dispelling with Tico. And I was like, oh baby, we got a new one. So, and of course that wasn't, wasn't, it was released maybe a couple years ago at this point, but right. it was new to me and uh, just blown away by the expertise in there. And then once I saw that he, you were on Living 4D, I, I wrote him immediately. I was out in Costa Rica and I was like, Paul, you got to get me Paul Levy now, please. I really, really want to have him on the podcast. So I'm absolutely thrilled that you've joined us. Um. I want to take a you know a dive down your background because we all come to walk our own paths, and for those of us who have a glimpse of enlightenment, whatever that may mean, um, sometimes the path is not as pretty as as uh, what we may think it is. So, if you could break down you know your your life growing up and 
and what led you to be who you are and, and maybe start, we can start diving into some of these books that you've released out to the world. Sure. No, I'm happy to do that. So yeah, my background is kind of unique in that. So I'm, I'm in my mid sixties now, but 40 years ago, actually this month, um, 1981, I had um, this life-transforming, over-the-top spiritual awakening that almost killed me, and it wound up destroying my entire family, the intensity of it. And what had happened, just to create context, because it really is like the source of my whole body of work, is that, you know, like, um, I'm not going to go into the story, but I'm an only child, and it wound up my father was a really, really bad guy, and I, you know, like every one of us, I was very sensitive and I was the recipient of him acting out his unhealed abuse, you know, which, which so many people do. They just acted out on their next of kin, but, um, it was so intense that it created this enormous suffering for me. And so, you know, and I'm talking about being in my early twenties and so the, and you know, it was such intense suffering that I went from being a highly accomplished person to that it stopped me from being able to, to live my life. Um, and so I knew I had to deal with it. And I, the only thing I could figure out that was helping was to go inwards, was to really observe what was happening inside of my mind. So I did that very, very intensively for a couple of years. And that catalyzed the spiritual awakening. And in this spiritual awakening, I got hit by a bolt of lightning while I was sitting in meditation, but just in my brain, it ignited for a nanosecond. And then I went into this incredibly extreme state in which I began to recognize, oh my God, we're having a mass shared dream. And, you know, I was realizing, oh my God, I'm waking up to the nature of things and to my nature. And I was so ecstatic and so enthusiastic that I immediately got brought by ambulance to a mental hospital and was put in a mental hospital. And, you know, within a minute, the, the, this life-changing synchronicity happened. I, I, I'm not going to go into that, but the point is I knew I was having a spiritual awakening. And then here I was getting like introduced to psychiatry and all they knew to do was pathologize me. And they right away diagnosed me and medicated me. And in that next couple of years, Probably, I don't know, four times or so I was, you know, thrown in mental hospitals. And the DSM-3 had just come out the year before in 1980 with, you know, announcing the, the chemical imbalance discovery. So everybody was, every psychiatrist, you know, was diagnosing me with this newly discovered chemical imbalance, telling me I had this mental illness, that I'd have to be on medication the rest of my life. And I just thought they have no idea what's happening. And, um, and I should point out now the same authors of the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry, who, you know, um, who authored the, the, the chemical imbalance theory, they then a number of years later came out and said, oh, by the way, that was completely fabricated and bogus and made up. It was the pharmaceutical company's idea. It's the authors of the DSM-3 who wrote the, the, that in the DSM-3 are now years later saying, oh, there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. And so, but it's a meme that has taken, that has such traction and really gotten entrained in our minds that people still bandy it about. But to make a long story short, so I knew I was having a spiritual awakening, but, but, but by the last hospitalization in 1982, I was totally traumatized by the unbelievable abuse of psychiatry. And, you know, when I say it destroyed my family, my parents bought into the psychiatric version that, oh, I'm just in denial of my mental illness. And they took that to their grave because in their mind, psychiatrists were authority figures. But I was fortunate in that I, the one thing that saved me, the experiences I, I you know, were, were, was having were so overwhelmingly clear that I was having a spiritual awakening that I knew it you know, when no one could talk me out of it. And, and that's what saved me. So then when I got out of the last hospital, I was totally traumatized then from the abuse from my father and psychiatry, like a sort of a double hit. But then, you know, I spent over 10 years just doing work on myself and going to therapy and working with my dreams and connecting with young and doing Buddhist practice and studying shamanism and going into alchemy and just anything and everything that would alleviate my suffering. And then 
you know, in the early 90s, I, I realized, well, I have something to offer now. I'm not in any way fully cooked, but at least I've integrated enough that I feel like I have a gift based on my initiatory ordeal that I can offer it to other people. And so that's when I started, you know, my practice, you know, helping, helping people. That is a, a, a gnarly, a gnarly thing to go through uh, as, as some initiations can be. Did you have a spiritual practice prior? Like what, what, uh, obviously, you know, there's, there's, when you have an awakening, at least in my experience, it is absolutely undeniable. So that that part, as you explain this, completely resonates with me. But as you talk about Jung and alchemy and some of these other things, practices, obviously, you know, Buddhism is layered through your books in a fantastic way that's highly uh, receivable. Had you had experience, you know, studying uh, Buddhism and some of these other mystical traditions? Yeah, only no, that's a good question. And basically, once you know. Once the trauma blossomed in me, which was in 1980, and the awakening happened in the spring of 1981, you know, and I began studying, um, you know, different types of Buddhism, Krishnamurti, just, you know, that was really my intro. Like, I had had some introduction in college to Castaneda and psychedelics and stuff like that, but it was really, you know, I was really starting to do Vipassana meditation, really spend hours a day doing that and studying Suzuki Roshi, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Trungpa, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, his writings. I was actually getting to meet Trungpa because he was coming to where I was living. And, um, and then, you know, just doing a lot of Vipassana. So yeah, I was for, you know, maybe one and a half years really steeped in it. But that was just the beginning. I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> that, that often is the case. You know, <laughs> you, you reach a brand new level of awareness and you're like, holy shit, it's different here. And then, oh, but there's more. Oh, but there's more. And I, I think that's, uh, you know, as you allude to in, in Quantum Revelation, likely the nature of the infinite unfolding. Um, well, let's, let's talk. I mean, it's, I think one thing that becomes very clear um, as we start to broaden our awareness is uh, just how fucked up things are in the world. And uh, I think, I think it was your first book. Was it on George W. Bush? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote a book, the madness of George W. Bush. (laughs) It's it's cool to see the arc of your writing, you know, because it's like, um, and that's actually the only book that I haven't read out of the, the, the three, there's three of them, correct? Well, no, then there's the, um, Awakened by Darkness, um, which okay. is my memoir. And that, that I wrote in between Dispelling Watiko and the Quantum Revelation. And that was really, that's about my encounter with archetypal evil through the figure of my father and through psychiatry. And it's all about, you know, the trauma and the wounding and the abuse that I went through in order to really connect with my voice and discover my mm. work. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm just thinking to the, to the, to, you know, what you discover, obviously, I think a lot of people in the States didn't quite get it, but if you left the country and went international while W. Bush was in office, it was painfully obvious how the rest of the world viewed us. Um, And I I mean, painfully obvious, but, uh, you know, looking back on that, um, uh, one of the books that have recommended people to have a, a deeper understanding of how, America has has um, treated the rest of the world is the new confessions of an economic hitman, or just the the confessions of an economic hitman. Uh, phenomenal books, but talk a bit about this arc. Mm-hmm. You know, you into your self discovery. You had already had these pieces in place that were really there as um, foundational pieces that allowed you to work with something, a working model. Um, Let's just dive into the darkness. Let's dive into what is Wetiko and how is how is it pervading all things right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so that's a that's great. Uh, Watiko, it's a Native American idea, um, you know, coming out of the Algonquin language or the Cree Indians. Um, the Ojibwe have a different, slightly different phrase, but it's all the same idea where it's this cannibalistic spirit. It's the spirit of evil that can actually possess a person and they then act it out and become the instrument. And, you know, so I, as a Westerner, I really, I'm just a translator. I've just 
as soon as I became aware of the Watiko idea and I studied it, I began to realize, oh my God, this maps on 100% to, you know, the evil that I was experiencing, not only coming through my father, but the field around him, the way it would configure to protect the abuser. And then I realized, oh my God, it's the same energy, the same dark energy that was coming through psychiatry. And it was a mindfuck. It was like, um, you know, it was, it was crazy making. And so as a translator, you know, into, into a Western idiom of this indigenous term, you know, I point out it's a psychospiritual disease of the soul that exists in the collective unconscious of our species. You know, it pervades everything. We all have it in potential. And, um, you know, and what Tico, it's, it, it, you know, one way to think of it, it's like this mind, like sort of this virus of the mind that operates through our blind spots. It's a form of, of blindness, of psychic blindness, but it's a, a unique form of psychic blindness in that it's, um, it actually thinks that uh, it's sighted. And not only does it think it's sighted, it thinks it's seeing more clearly than people who actually are sighted. And it's a form of blindness that we don't know we're blind when we're afflicted with Watiko. And any of us can have it at any given moment. And it feeds off of fear and separation. And it stops us from seeing our own light, but it also stops us from seeing the darkness, our own shadow. And it's a for, but the thing about Watiko, it's this revelation. And it's a quantum phenomena that it has a superposition of states, that it's the source of the greatest evil. And it's also um, encoded, hidden within it is the greatest blessing. It's helping us to wake up. It's like propelling us to make, to access our divine endowment and our incredible creative gifts. Um, so it's actually showing us something. And it, it's a dreamed up phenomenon. I can say more about that. But if we don't recognize what it's showing us, then it's going to kill us. And now the thing is, I want to point out, because I don't want people to be scared, you know, uh, because Watiko feeds off of fear, you know, the thing about Watiko, it doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as Watiko. It is no intrinsic independent existence at all from its own side. But it exists. It's not separate from our own mind. So here's this thing, which in Buddhism is called empty. It has no intrinsic, independent existence separate from our own mind. So on the one hand, there's nothing to be afraid of, and yet it can kill us. Okay? So it's this revelation, and if we don't recognize what it's showing us, it's going to continue its, its programmed function of destroying us, you know, because it actually, because it operates through the blind spots, it operates through the unconscious, so we then become identified with it in a certain way through our unconscious and then we unwittingly become an instrument to act it out in the world so we then become the vector to act it out and if i could just say one more thing because there are so many trippy things about what the bible in the apocryphal text you know and in the apocryphal text that you know that was the real sacred teachings in the bible um in the apocryphal text they completely point out what they call it the counterfeiting spirit but as I point out in my next book, because I have two new books coming out on Watiko, the, the Watiko spirit was on the editorial board of the Bible and edited out any reference, not any reference, but this particular reference, the counterfeiting spirit. Um, because, you know, Watiko can't be exposed when you see it. It hates that because then you take away its power over you and you empower yourself. So we can only have power over us to the extent that it's not seen. But this counterfeiting spirit, what it does, it actually impersonates us. It puts us on, which is to fool us, but putting us on like a suit of clothes. So if we aren't awake in that moment, we then identify with its limited version, its fictitious identity of who we are. And then as soon as we step into, into the Watiko forged identity, then by the power of our mind, we're going to attract all the evidence confirming oh, I'm really limited, I'm really traumatized, I'm wounded, you know, blah, blah, blah. And you see, Watiko has no creativity, but it plugs into our own creative agency, turning it against ourselves to serve its nefarious purpose. So I'll stop there. I could say a lot more, but that's just a little bit of an introduction 
to to the multidimensional, you know, sort of spirit. Yeah, of Yeah, something that you pointed out in the book that was that was absolutely beautiful is how we anthropomorphize everything, and so we have this caricature of the devil or Satan or what evil is as this guy in a red suit with a pitchfork and hot coals that he's jamming into you. And, um, you know, but that's, that's not what Watiko is. Watiko is non-local and that actually pairs very well with the quantum revelation, the book that followed because of the fact that because it's non-local, it exists simultaneously within everything and everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly it. The non-local because quantum physics has discovered that this, this universe is non-local which is to say that, you know, it doesn't play by the rules of third dimensional space and time. And that this universe being quantum, you know, on all levels is a whole system. There's no separate parts interacting. So every part of the universe all throughout space and time is interconnected with every other part. There's no separation anywhere. So, you know, this universe is non-local and what Tico shares in that, as do we, you know, I mean, we have this this limited aspect, but not, but Watiko is non-local in that it's not contained or circumscribed by space and time the way we understand it. And so, you see, the thing is, it's like the unconscious. When you see somebody acting out the unconscious, the unconscious is non-local in that you can't possibly see somebody acting out the unconscious without your unconscious being activated. And then it depends, well, what do you do with that? You know, how do you deal with being triggered? You know, and if you just indulge in acting out your unconscious as a result of seeing another person acting out their unconscious, well, then, you know, that's one situation where you're you're both going to be triggering each other. But if you have your unconscious activated and, and self-reflect and metabolize what got activated in you, then the, and you're able to integrate that, then that's a whole different story. So the same thing with Watiko. When we see Watiko in someone, it activates the Watiko in us. And so say, for example, if somebody, you know, like a president or a prime minister or whoever, if they're like really incarnating and possessed by and embodying Watiko, and if we say, oh, well, they're, they have Watiko, they're embodying Watiko, and if we, if we think they have it and we don't, then that's an expression that we've fallen under the thrall of the bug, that we have Watiko, you know, as is evidenced by that perspective, you know, because it feeds off of separation and polarization. Yeah. Just yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of that, you know, the, the, the ways in which you point out and you brought up, you know, uh, countless uh, archetypes throughout, you know, our stories growing up from Count Dracula to, you know, some of the different, um, you know, evildoers, but thinking of Dracula in, in, in vampires in general, how they can't see themselves in the mirror. You know, there's no self, they can't, they can't have self-reflection, but one of the ways that we dispel with Tico is through self-reflection. That was truly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and what Tico is totally a vampire. I mean, it literally feeds off of our life force. It, remember it has no independent existence on its own. It's, it's, it's a form of death taking on life. You know, so if left to its own devices, it would die. So, you know, it feeds off of our life force. But part of the the vampire myth is that a vampire has no power over us unless we invite it in. So the point is, is that, you know, it's important to to find out where we're colluding with Watiko, with that vampire, with the evil, you know, because um, without our being complicit, we it has no power over us. Okay. Now, yeah. And I was pointing out in my book, like all, you know, like with indigenous, um, traditions, I'll talk about, oh, there are these, you know, devil or demon, a demon, you know, that's the, in a way that's the indigenous term for Watiko in the sense that in psychology speak, when the wholeness of our psyche gets, you know, traumatized and we split off and, um, we, you know, disassociate, what happens is that an autonomous complex, that's the, the psychological term, um, will develop that'll seemingly have this life or will of its own. And, um, you know, and it'll seemingly act out contrary to our best intentions. And that autonomous complex, that's the demon. That's what an indigenous culture would call a demon. And one way of thinking about that is that's what Tico, it's a split off part of the psyche. 
you know, split off from our own wholeness that develops a seeming autonomy of its own. But keep in mind, you know, it doesn't actually exist in an autonomous way. That's why I say seeming autonomy. And um, now also a thing about Watiko, which is so amazing, this is one of the most psychedelic aspects of it, is that it's an inner disease of the soul that explicates itself through the medium of the outside world. So it's somehow able, so it's an inner disease of the soul that's somehow able to extend itself out into the outside world in such a way so as to configure events in the world so as to, in a synchronistic way, reflect back what's happening inside the psyche that's under its thrall. Now, that's amazing because what that means, what I'm describing is that when somebody is under the spell of Wotiko, you know, they will play out their inner circumstance of their psyche will literally get reflected through the outer events in their life. So the outer is actually reflecting the inner, you know, vice versa too. The inner is reflecting the outer. That's an expression of a dream. You see, that's what I began to wake up to when I had my awakening. I was realizing, oh my God, we're having a mass shared collective dream. And when you see the dreamlike nature, when you see that correspondence between the outer and the inner, that's when you're beginning to, you know, to first be able to see Watiko, how it operates in the world and how it operates through our unconscious reactions in our own mind. Yeah, it's it's beautifully stated, and that's something that I've that I've had to <laughs> re. I've been, I've been wrapping my head around for probably the last five or six months um, in detail. You know, I had a uh, many of my listeners heard me drop a solo podcast where I talked about the dark night of the soul with five um, uh, meo DMT, and you know, really experienced hands on for seventeen days with Tico and its fullness and how it showed up in various ways it just changed and morphed, you know, any, any spiritual teaching I was reading, it truly acted like a mind virus. It would invert it and turn it on its head. You know, uh, like an old spiritual, like the, the Tatuamasi, I am that too. I would see all the darkness in the world and, and Tatuamasi, like I am that too. But it really, I mean, to the darkest of the darkest, you know, it was showing me, yes, you're this, yes, you're this with, with some of the horrific things that are going on. But even just on a mirroring standpoint, it, it dawned on me while I was reading that book that, holy shit, like we'd have a literal virus right now in the world. And here's this mind virus internally that is, that is really terrorizing right now. And um, it's interesting to see because, you know, as we talk about, and I want you to break down, you know, we'll dive into quantum revelation, but dependent co-arising is something um, that really blew me away. And I want you to unpack that for us, but seeing that if, if everything is mirrored in the external as the internal and as above, so below, as within, so without, it's pretty gnarly to think of what consciousness is doing right now within itself to see the, the world externally and understand like the, the giant upheaval that's taking place. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, you know, I mean, we're, like I was saying, Watiko, it's a dreamed up phenomenon. We're, we're dreaming up. The Watiko collective psychosis, because that's what it is. It's a collective psychosis, you know, and, but, you know, the point is, is that because it's a dreamed up phenomena, we can undream it. We, you see, the, the point is this, in essence, I mean, really one of the most fundamental parts of my work is that each one of us have this unimaginably vast creative power at our disposal right now, 24 seven, we've always had it. But to the extent we don't know we have it, that creative power, in a way, gets turned against us. You know, like, you know, the powers that be or the powers of the state are more than happy to, to use our creative agency and turn it against us. And um, so what I'm pointing at, and, you know, and this could be a good segue into the, the quantum physics stuff, because, you know, quantum physics is empirically showing and I can, you know, I would like to talk more about that, how, you know, I mean, what quantum physics does, it's not only showing us, it's actually unlocking the most unimaginably vast creative agency that each of us have, you know, every moment through how we interpret our experience, through the meaning we place on our experience, we have, you know, just 
unbelievable power in creating our experience of ourselves and our experience of the world. But to the extent we don't know that, you know, j- just like a dream, that then gets projected out and, and then we feel into the dream and other people pick it up and we feel victimized and we feel helpless and we feel like we don't have any power. But, you know, the, the real medicine, you see, it's because of this that people who are switched on to the Watiko idea say this is the most important thing in the world to understand. It's not even close. It's not even a competition. Castaneda, he doesn't have the word Watiko, you know, but he, he, you know, he'll talk about it. His teacher talks about it in the Castaneda books. And um, he says it's the topic of topics. There's nothing more important than this because this is the medicine. This is what we have multiple converging world crises. We're in the process of destroying ourselves. You know, that's not up for debate. I mean, for anybody who has eyes to see. And, but what I'm pointing at is that, yeah, there's a certain medicine encoded in the pathology. Because remember, Watiko, it's a quantum phenomena. It contains the deepest evil and this incredible, like, gift. And so what I'm pointing at is that, yeah, it's, um, you know, to the extent that we're able to, in a sense, access this incredible creative agency um that and when enough of us do that and connect with each other that's the medicine that's where we can literally help each other to wake up we can conspire to co-inspire it's a true conspiracy theory we can actually dream ourselves awake and this is to step in and in a participatory way step into our own evolutionary process and we can help each other to deepen and stabilize our awakening and so you know I'm just wondering, can I go into oh, the please, please stuff do. This, because, is, this is fantastic. Yeah. And don't worry, you know, face to face where we can see each other, you know, back and forth are great. But on these online podcasts, like, yeah, I'm lobbing softballs to you. Please just run with it as long as you possibly can go. Okay, great, great. Sure. Because quantum physics, you know, how come I wrote that quantum physics book is because I was realizing, oh, my God, well, on one hand, quantum physics helped me to understand the experiences I began having these completely out of the ordinary experiences I began having when I when my spiritual awakening started in 1981. But then I realized that quantum physics, it not only helped me contextualize my own experience, but it also is offering us the medicine for Watiko. Here, Watiko, okay, you know, I've made the diagnosis. It's the mind virus, Watiko. That's what's afflicting our species. That's the source of the madness and the evil that we're playing out. That's the diagnosis, well, and the prognosis is, oh, well, quantum physics is offering us the medicine. It's one of the things offering us the medicine, but it's, you know, current in our world and in our minds right now. And, you know, if we take in the medicine, then not only can we heal Watiko, but then Watiko can reveal its positive aspect of catalyzing us to expand our consciousness. So to talk about quantum physics before quantum physics came on the scene 100 years ago, more or less, scientists thought that this universe existed objectively separate from them, and they were just trying to, you know, explore it and understand it sort of as passive observers. And then quantum physics comes along, which proved empirically beyond the shadow of a doubt that there's no such thing as an objective cosmos that this universe, that the act of observing this universe actually influences the universe observed. I should just do a short commentary. That's a description of a dream. When you're in a dream, when you change your perception, the dream, which is none other than a reflection of your own mind, has no choice but to instantaneously shapeshift and reflect your change in in, in perception because the dream is nothing other than your own mind. So quantum physics was beginning to plug into the dreamlike nature and to recognize the role that mind, that consciousness played in the creation of the physical world. So by proving that there's no objective world, that the act of observing is actually influencing the world that we're observing, it's pointing out that the act of observation is creative, that we are incredibly creative beings that have creative power beyond measure, okay? Now, to understand this, then you begin to realize, oh my God, 
you know, it can, when you have this realization, it just like unlocks the most enormous creativity. That's our nature. But we've been using it unconsciously. And then the Watiko bug plugs into our, you know, you know, unaccessed creative spirit and turns it against us. And so the point is, is that when you discover that there's no objective world, that the act of observing actually influences the universe observed, the act of observation is creative, and that we discover that we're these creative beings, you discover, wait, if there's no objective world, then who am I? Because that's the main task of science, according to the greatest scientists, is discovering who are we. And if there's no objective world, who are we as a subject? We need an object to be in relationship to in order to be a subject. If there's no objective world, if there's no objective anything, then who are we? You see, quantum physics has actually unwittingly promoted itself to be a spiritual path because it's shedding light on our nature. Now, it's one thing for one person to have this realization. It'll change their life. Their life will improve. You know, just you can't even imagine how much it will improve in every arena. But that's insignificant. Because the idea is, is that what you discover is that who we are, we don't exist as a separate self, that we're interdependent and interconnected with each other, okay? And that as long as, as other people are suffering, we ourselves are in whole, because the other person is ourselves. There is no separation in a quantum world, okay? So the point is, is that then you connect with your, like, calling and, and vocation, to be in service. And when you have this realization, you understand, okay, it helps my life a lot, but I want to share it because you see quantum physics is called, I, I actually gave a big talk about this in Tibetan Buddhism. There's a phenomenon called terma and terma are the hidden treasures. And the idea is, is that, and you know, the, the lineage, one of the, line, the, the, the lineage I do practice to it, you know, the teachings are kept fresh by like these continually rediscovered treasures that are found in in the multidimensional fabric of the universe, including inside of our minds. So when all of a sudden, you know, the practice or the teachings get stale or one-sided, one of these hidden treasures will be discovered and it'll, it'll give instructions or it'll be a prayer or a teaching or a practice or a blessed object or something to bring the community of practitioners back into balance. It's like having a dream. And when we get off balance, the dream compensates the one-sidedness and brings us back to balance. So these terma, they're like alarm clocks that are hidden in the fabric of this universe. And it's a real thing. You know, this isn't fairy tale stuff. Scholars study this. This is one of the traditions in Tibetan Buddhism, like I've been saying, is based on terma, on the hidden on the hidden treasure tradition. So in this talk I gave a couple years ago, I point out that Quantum physics is a modern-day analog to a terma, that it's a hidden treasure that we have literally dreamed up into the world and dreamed up into our mind to help us to, like, remember who we are, to help us to, like, unlock our creative genius, to help us to recognize the dreamlike nature, because quantum physics has proven. You see, the thing about quantum physics, it's very controversial. All, all the physicists are, like, arguing, what does it mean? How do we interpret it? But one thing that nobody argues about is that it's the greatest discovery ever in all of history in the realm of science. And what I'm pointing out is that quantum physics is revealing to us. It's showing us. It's proving the dreamlike nature. This is in, in a metaphorical sense that it's like a dream. This is a dream. This is nothing other than a collectively shared dream that we're dreaming up together. And because we're unconscious, we've dreamed up Watiko to, to potentially to destroy us, but encoded. But then the question is, how come we're doing that? How come we're destroying ourselves? And I point out that encoded in the process of destroying ourselves, we're teaching ourselves how to not destroy ourselves, which we clearly haven't learned, or we wouldn't be destroying ourselves. The point is encoded in the pathology in Watiko is the medicine, okay? And quantum physics is showing us this. It's a hidden treasure, it's a modern-day analog to a terma, to a hidden treasure. And, and I'm just pointing out, yeah, it's showing us our incredible creative genius. It's showing us the dreamlike nature. It's, it's introducing us to who we are, that we don't exist as a separate self, 
Because Watiko, in essence, is a misidentification of who we think we are. If we think we're an ego and a separate self, well, that means that then other people are separate from us. And then we're all like separate from each other. And we reinforce that particular spell on each other. And being a dream, we then invoke all the evidence confirming our, our misguided perspective. And what we've done, we've tricked ourselves, we've hypnotized ourselves out of our own minds. And like this really good way of understanding this, just imagine being in a night dream and imagine whatever you're seeing, the dream, you know, being just a reflection of your mind, just reflects it back. Well, you know, if you're holding a viewpoint in the dream, right, you're having a night dream. If you're holding a viewpoint in the dream that the dream is objective, that it's separate from you, the dream being a reflection of your mind has no choice but to reflect back and give you all the evidence confirming your viewpoint that, you know, that it is separate and objective. And then now you have all the evidence proving your viewpoint. So you become even more entrenched in your viewpoint. And the more entrenched in your viewpoint of seeing the the dream is objective, the dream world is objective, the more then the dream will supply the evidence confirming. It's a feedback loop that self-generates whose origin is our own mind. That's an example that we were using our genius, our collective genius against us in a way that's killing us. What my whole work is pointing at is trying to flood light on this process, which is to be found within our minds, you know, and the result is we then actually connect with our incredible creative power. It seems like the ultimate mind fuck. You talk about the feedback loop and the way nature or the external mirrors are internal. I think Buddha talked about the six, the six um, realms of consciousness with the hell realm actually existing. And, and I think many people who have had their walk in the fire, the dark night of the soul can fully appreciate that heaven and hell are lived experiences here on earth and are not that far away from us, depending on how, how far up or down the ladder we are in our own understanding of reality. It certainly felt like I lived through hell for 17 days. Um, and then thankfully was snapped out of it. Thanks to Paul check. And, and of course, you know, being able to take the deep dive into dispelling with Tico. If it's, if it's, if what we're up against is 400 years plus of scientific materialism saying that we are separate, saying that there is an objective world to study in an objective universe that exists without our observation, without our awareness, we're, we're, up quite a, we're up against modern science, we're up against modern religion, which teaches of a separate God, we're up against the morphic resonance of the collective consciousness that humanity has all agreed upon due to our indoctrination. If, if salvation lies in understanding the oneness of all of creation and the, the, the one song universe that we live in as one being, how far of an uphill battle do you think we have right now in coming to that understanding? Well, you know, I want to say, so there's definitely, we have work to do. There's no doubt about that, but be careful about, you know, the power of our words, you know, how do you make a word? You, you spell it. We're always casting spells by the way we, we language our experience. And if we say, oh, it's really, really hard to wake up, for example, well, then we're, we're instantaneously going to evoke a universe that's going to confirm to us that it's really, really hard to wake up by the power of our words. And so I, I just want to invoke quantum physics to contemplate, you know, how to answer your question. Because quantum physics, one of the things it says um, is that um, before, so you, you have these things called quantum entities, which are, you see, because quantum physics is trying to understand the real uh, microstru- the microstructure, the building blocks of this universe. And so, and, you know, and, um, and then it didn't find anything physical. Actually, at the bottom, it found consciousness. But there are these things called quantum entities that exist in a state of potentiality in every and any possible state they could ever exist in before they're actually observed. And at the moment of observation, they actualize into a particular manifestation and all the other possibilities, they vaporize into parallel worlds as if they never existed. And so what this means is mind blowing because even if one of those possibilities of that quantum entity 
before it's observed is highly, ridiculously unlikely. Quantum physics is saying, oh, but that could be the one that manifests this very next moment. Okay, so to connect this to the real world, the idea that humanity might actually awaken in time, you know, to avert this catastrophe, these multiple catastrophes that we're creating, that, according to quantum physics, is within the realm of possibility. And if we're not thinking that, if we're caught by pessimism and despair, well, then, you know, by the, it's going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we see the world pessimistically, we're going to attract all the evidence confirming our pessimism in a mind-generated feedback loop. And then we're part of the problem, but not part of the solution. But as soon as we begin to realize, oh, wow, you know, that it's within the realm of possibility for a sufficient number, whether you talk about the hundredth monkey phenomena, the Bible talks about 144,000, just a critical mass of people you know, in the collective unconscious to have realization, you know, of whatever, of our nature, of the dreamlike nature, of Watiko, of the shadow, however you would describe it. But once there's a sufficient number of people who have that realization, then we can awaken. And that quantum physics is saying that's absolutely in the realm of possibility. And if you're not thinking that, then what are you thinking? and, And one other thing too, a beautiful metaphor to explain this, In the collective works, Jung talks about that um, the way symbols actually manifest in the unconscious, he uses the metaphor of like when you have a glass of water and you dissolve these grains of sugar into the water, they'll just dissolve and dissolve and dissolve and then it reaches the saturation point and you add one more grain of sugar in that water and a crystal manifests. And he's saying that's the way a symbol manifests in the unconscious that helps us to get back in balance. And the point is, any one of us having realization of whatever, you know, what I'm talking about now, the dreamlike nature, the quantum nature, Watiko, owning our shadow, however you characterize it, that could be the grain of sugar that catalyzes a global awakening in the collective unconscious of humanity. And that's true that's a real possibility and that inspires incredible hope absolutely yeah i'd love and i'd I'd forgotten that that analogy of the crystallization i think that's a a beautiful symbol that a lot of people can grasp i've actually had it was i think a year to the date before my my experience with the darkness um a vision that that quite a few people who practice with plant medicines have had of a global awakening. And it was before, of course, prior to lockdowns and all the craziness that's transpired over the last year. But it was a visceral, a visceral experience that wasn't knowing. And the more I, I dream into that, the more possible it feels. So I don't want to, you know, <laughs> of course, come across and use the word magic uh, or cast a spell of pessimism when it comes to that. But if we are all... Um, if this is co-arising within all of us, um, the propelling of consciousness is what seems to be necessary. And of course, there's many avenues through through uh, the you know, and you can't place any one importance on, on a singular path. I'm sure you know, even in everything that you've mentioned now, from Buddhism to Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche to Carl Jung, and all the different avenues that you sought, and still having your dark night of the soul as a as a big catalyst for that awakening. Um, there, there are many, many paths that lead us to our ascension and to our awakening. Um, but if this is dependently co-arising, the world is locked into fear. What do you think is the best mode of helping people through their fear? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, yeah, fear, once we get hooked by the fear, that's where we can be controlled. And, and that then we then become you know, the instrument through which Watiko can just have its way with us and act itself out through us and fear is contagious. And so one of the things I point out is that particularly since the pandemic, so many people have been saying, wow, this is so like surreal. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's so surreal. It's so dreamlike that it's even easier to recognize the dreamlike nature of, of reality. And when you recognize the dreamlike nature it dispels fear, you know, because you've seen through the separate self. 
Because when, you see, as, if we're identified with a separate self, all of a sudden, then I'm in here in my skin encapsulated ego, and then there's other, you know, then there's others. And as soon as there's others, fear arises, right? But when I have the realization that, oh, I'm actually, you know, interconnected with, with everybody and with everything, that there's no separation, that's just to recognize the nature of our situation. That's always the case, but recognizing that really can dispel fear. And then, you know, you see, because like I was saying, if, as soon as we get hooked by fear, that's why the mainstream media, you know, all the organs of propaganda, they're just, you know, cultivating fear all over the place. And then, you know, and it becomes contagious. And like, you know, I'm pointing out that the coronavirus, the actual physical COVID-19 is a lower level emanation of the higher dimensional Watiko virus of the mind, because the coronavirus isn't just physical. You know, we think, oh, it's like has this, you know, this physical, all it is is, no, well, take a look. It has, I, in my next book, I point out it has like a whole subtle body. Like as soon as it came into the world, it, um, you know, just look at how it affected. It shut down economies, it shut down governments, it, we weren't allowed to like leave our houses, it changed the way we thought, the way we dreamed, what we wore, all of that is the subtle body of the, um, of the coronavirus, you know, and, and you, you begin to realize, yeah, all of those effects on our behavior and on our life were mediated through the psyche. Yeah. And that's, that's the arena of Watiko, because you see the thing about the mind virus, it's pro it's showing us and proving to us, you know, the in profound importance that the human psyche plays in our experience. And to the extent we're asleep to that, that's the materialistic spell of thinking, oh, no, consciousness doesn't affect anything. And this is just a material world. And we're just, you know, separate from it. No, that's, that's an expression of being infected by Watiko. And so like I'm pointing out Watiko, it's literally showing us the incredible importance of the psyche in, in the creation of, of our world and the creation of our experience of ourselves and of our world. And, you know, to see that actually um, can really help to dispel fear. Okay. So that would be my, my show, my I love sure, that. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that has helped me is is the realization that, you know, the the in in moving out of scientific materialism, Big Bang theory, uh, everything's on like a uh, gears, like a like a ticking clock that's just been set in motion, and the wheels are set in motion. And understanding time is not linear but circular, and moving into this quantum nature that that we as co creators get to change our reality in the never ending now for always. So it's so empowering to understand that. And uh, clearly, I don't think we've mastered that yet because we haven't seen a whole lot change. Maybe uh, some of the people in Texas have started to shift their reality in, in Florida and other places that have um, in particular become a little bit more sane about how to go about life in general. But I'm wondering... Um, you know, what are some of the things I know we're on very short time here with you. I just want to dive in. I know you've been coaching people for a very long time. And what are some of the ways in which you help people to reconnect to a deeper understanding? Obviously you've written many books. You have two more coming out, but in coaching people, what are yeah. some of the ways that you help um, point yeah. people in the direction well, of, of their so knowing? The thing is, yeah, no, I appreciate that. And the thing is, you know, when I, when I connect with people, you know, I, I'm always interested I'm kind of like a heat-seeking missile, and then I go, I always find myself right to the story that people tell themselves that keeps them small. And we've all internalized, because the way abuse works is that, you know, something will get enacted in our life, in our external, in the world, and then, you know, that'll be, that'll be abu abusive or traumatic or wounding. But then typically we internalize that, and the abuser exits stage left, and then we become our own control system. We then enact the abuse on ourselves, you know, and that's in a way just a description of being traumatized. You know, we all have PTSD and, you know, the whole like being having trauma, it's totally related to Watiko and being addicted. You know, the Watiko bug is at the bottom of both of those. And so, on the one hand, I try to shed light on the internalized story 
because the essence of abuse that I found is that for us to express ourselves, that it's that it's it's not safe. It's like this this dangerous situation, and we've internalized that you know that that sort of control um, structure in our mind. So you know, then we split off from our voice, from our inner voice, and so in essence, the real medicine invariably with everybody that I get to is finding is helping them to connect with their creative spirit because that's our nature we're made in the image of our creator we are creative beings and um to the extent we're not like we're so unbelievably creative that some people create the experience for themselves of oh i'm not creative at all and by the unbelievable divine power of their creativity they will they will create a convincing experience of them not being creative and I point out that that's an expression of their unbelievably, you know, divine creativity, but it's being used against them. So the idea being when any of us connect, I, I know for me, if I didn't find my voice, my inner voice, you know, and with my books and my writing and, you know, and teaching and helping people, I would have been in deep trouble. You know, because as an example, for a number of years after the abuse from my father in psychiatry, I can only describe, I was so in trauma, I can only describe what happened in a couple of sentences. And then when I began to heal and I found my voice, I wrote a 600-page book on my process of, you know, wounding and abuse and trauma, um, you know, because I found my voice. And there's something about being creative that is the medicine for Watiko. And, um, you know, and it's, it's really interesting when you hook up with other people who are also plugged into being creative, you know, it's not a competition type of thing, but it becomes, it becomes contagious. When you hang out with somebody who's really like, you know, I think people, they, they like hanging out with me because I'm just a very, you know, very creative person and I think it just like activates other people's creativity, like the unconscious part of them that's creative. It can recognize the creativity coming through me. And then, you know, it's, um, you know, then it just activates their own creative process. But the point is, is that there is a way of being together in community, the Sangha of the Buddhism in Buddhism, the, 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 you know, the, the Buddha Dharma Sangha, uh, the jewel, the three jewels, the teacher, the teaching, and the community. And the Sangha, that's the community that the Buddha even said, don't hang out with fools. When you hang out with people who are really asleep, who are not doing their work, it rubs off on you. But when you hang out with people who are really doing their work, you know, who are really deepening their realization of the dreamlike nature, you know, who are like actively expressing their creative spirit, that becomes like a contagious, that's the virus, a, a positive virus that can really activate all of us. And, and I just want to say too, as we get close to, to needing to close, um, you know, one of like when people ask me, oh, how do I recognize the dreamlike nature and wake up and dispel Watiko? One of the things that I always get to is to cultivate compassion, you know, and, and not just for, you know, yeah, for everyone, but including yourself. You know, there are sometimes, maybe all the times, it's ourself that's the hardest to generate the compassion for. But the compassion, true compassion, which comes out of the realization of the dreamlike nature, of that we're not separate, that's the, the Watiko dissolver par excellence. And so to the extent that we can really just, you know, and it's not something that you ever get to the end of it. Even His Holiness Dalai Lama, he's always talking about, oh, I'm always increasing my altruism. I'm always expanding my compassion, you know, and um, it's, it's really, you know, that, that good heart in Buddhism is called bodhicitta, the precious bodhicitta. And it's the thing that you have to start with whenever you do any practice. When you're a beginner, you have to cultivate the good heart, bodhicitta. And then when you finally become enlightened, the fruit, the result you get is bodhicitta. That's really interesting that it's the same thing at the beginning and the end of the path in Buddhism. And that bodhicitta, it's called precious. It's sacred. That's the good heart. That's the heart filled with compassion. And by doing that, it actually it activates your creative spirit. 
it, it, it heals your, the Watiko that's in you. And so, you know, I'm just glad that I'm remembering to talk about both being creative and, and having that, you know, that real compassion, both for yourself and for all beings that creates the feel that creates the circumstance. When enough of us do that and connect with each other, we can change the dream. We can, you know, change the waking dream. And that's to actually discover we can actually, in a participatory way, step into our own evolution and to help each other to wake up. And that's what this is all about, you know? And um, just one final thing. It's like, you know, we're having a recurring dream. And when you don't get the message in a recurring dream, the dream just amplifies its message until you get it. And like, you know, the evil and the madness is just getting amplified more and more and more. And it's like we've been here before. It's like we've had this dream before. Maybe billions of times we have dreamed up a circumstance, you know, where we're on like something like planet Earth and we're like in the process of destroying ourselves and then we destroy ourselves. And then it takes billions of years, which in dream time is no time at all to get right back to this place. And then here we are once again. And my prayer is at this time that sufficient number of us can recognize what's available to us. We have everything we need. And instead of just destroying ourselves, we can avert the catastrophe and we can dream ourselves awake. And that, in essence, is what my work is about. And that's what all, that's what this whole drama that we're playing out is about. Incredible, Paul. Well, I know you got to run. Where can people find you online? Okay, well, they can go to my website, um, awakenindthedream.com. And when you go to, to the website, there's just a ton of free articles because this is, you know, this information I just want people um, you know, to, um, to have access to. And then, yeah, people can, you know, they can, you know, whatever, get, you know, get sessions with me or, or buy my books, but it's not monetized. There's tons of interviews like this and, and talks I give, and I just want to get this stuff out. Um, so A W A K E N in the dream.com awaken in the dream.com. Thank you so much, Paul. We'll do it again after we get through uh, some of your next books. I look forward to them. Thank you, brother. Totally. I just want to thank you so much, really. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 